Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. One of the fun things about clergy retreats is you get to talk to priests from all over, people you haven't seen in a while. You get to hear about what's going on in their parish, some of which is good, some of which sometimes not so good. Um, And so I was talking with one of our priests uh, at this clergy retreat this past week, and he was telling me a story where he, and I think he's been at his parish for about 10 years, and uh, he invited a guest preacher who he thought was going to be a solid way to kind of have a week off from his preaching and also uh, for his people to hear, you know, the the gospel from a different voice. So he brought this guy in to to preach, um, and the, the priest said, well, he undid years of my teaching work. Years of my teaching work. You have to be careful who you have preached. And what he said to the congregation was that he was going to teach them a prayer, a formula that they could pray and they would get whatever they wanted from God if they just used this particular formula. And of course, all the people after the service, you know, this priest, his mouth is hanging on so low, it's hitting the floor. And people are, that was such a great sermon, Father. That was wonderful. You know, he goes, yeah, it was something. Now, I think most of us, when we hear something like that, we kind of roll our eyes. We say, oh, my gosh, I can't believe someone would say that. But at the same time, maybe you had a little bit of an internal reaction where you said, you know, it actually would be kind of nice, though, if there was some formula or secret prayer I could pray and I'd get whatever I wanted. I really want a nice parking spot. I really want that raise or that promotion. Um, I really want the Dallas Cowboys to win the Super Bowl. Um, I don't think prayer can help us at this point. I don't know. So we would all love that. I think it it, it speaks to our human desire for power, right? We're always looking for power. And some people look to different things for it, right? Some people look to their money. Some people look to their political power. Some people look to their physique, their intellectual ability, their social clout. Maybe maybe they look inside for some sort of mantra or affirmation or, or the power of positive thinking. But as Christians, we're told not to look to any of those things for power. Instead, as Christians, we're invited to participate in the Christ story. And that invitation is an invitation to die. Our old man is put to death. Our flesh is put to death as we pick up our crosses and follow him. But at the same time, it's an invitation to be raised, right? The new man is here. We're raised to walk in the newness of life. And so all of us who have been baptized are engaged in this constant synthesis between two poles. We're putting off and we're putting on. There's mortification and glory. There's death and resurrection. Now this season of Eastertide, which really only lasts a couple more weeks, is a reminder to us that as Christians, we're sharers in the death and life of Jesus Christ and that it's his power and righteousness that we need just like Hannah found in our Old Testament reading this morning. And if we follow Christ, if we receive that power that he gives, it transforms our lives into lives of perpetual doxology or praise. And this is what we find, I think, in the Song of Hannah, which is the original Magnificat in 1 Samuel 2. For those of you who may be unfamiliar with the story, Hannah was a, was a Jewish woman who was married to a man named Elkanah in Israel's pre-monarchical period. The problem with Elkanah is that he was a bigamist. He had two wives. His other wife was named Peninnah. In the ancient world, it's important to remember that children, especially male children, were an important means of security, especially for women. 
The problem with this situation was that Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not. Hannah was barren. And to make matters worse, we see Peninnah mock and insult Hannah's infertility. And during this whole ordeal, Elkanah is of little to no help. In fact, when he finds Hannah weeping over the issue, he asks her what might be the most tone-deaf question a man has ever asked his wife in the history of marriage. He says, am I not more to you than ten sons? (laughs) Most of you men are older than I am and have been married longer than me, but please take note of what not to say there. And so Hannah, heartbroken over over this issue, goes to the tabernacle, and she prays, and she prays, and she prays with great faith. In fact, she's praying so hard that when Eli the priest walks in and sees her, he actually thinks she's drunk. But after realizing what was actually going on, God, through the priest, promises Hannah a son. And sure enough, Samuel was born shortly thereafter. And what's interesting is that once Hannah has Samuel, she doesn't doesn't keep him for herself. She doesn't make him live at home until he's in his mid-30s. She actually gives him back to God as soon as he's weaned. She brings him to the tabernacle and leaves him there with Eli and his, and his sons. There's actually a really cute uh, passage where she makes him a little ephod, like, like, if, like if my wife made Rowan a, 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 an altar server's outfit. You know, She makes him that and gives it to, the, to, to him as a boy. And of course, Samuel became one of the most important prophets in the history of Israel. He's one of the most important figures in the Old Testament. And because of this miracle then, Hannah sings this beautiful song that we read today. It's the first Magnificat. It's a hymn so profound that it even inspired the Blessed Virgin Mary in her beautiful song found in the beginning of Luke. Hannah's song is so beautiful and profound that St. Augustine called her a prophet who spoke the grace of God itself. It's a song that rejoices, not in her personal achievement, not in Hannah's power or her ability, but in the holiness and power of God. And amidst this doxology, this praise, there's an anticipation that those who suppose themselves to be powerful because of their wealth or their political power or whatever else will be humbled. The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes. This is a longing for God to demonstrate his power not just by bringing down the powerful, but by empowering the powerless, just like he did with Hannah. Ultimately, though, this prayer, this longing that she articulates, finds its fulfillment, its culmination in the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where God defeats his spiritual enemies. In Colossians 2, St. Paul says that blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross, and having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them, openly triumphing them over them in it. In Hebrews 2, the author makes a very similar argument. For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them, who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now in our colic today, there's a phrase, grant unto all those who are admitted into the fellowship of Christ's religion. 
And it's a reminder that Eastertide is an invitation into the paradox and reversal of the Christ story. We see this commonly by baptism of those who are unbaptized, an event that usually takes place at the Easter Vigil or on Easter Day, but can happen throughout the season. And of course, it can happen any Sunday throughout the year. It's just that's a common time for us to do them. But the invitation I think that our collect offers is not just for the uninitiated, it's for all of us who have been baptized, inviting us to go further up and further into the mystery of our redemption. And we do this by way of a twofold movement. That's what propels us forward. And the collect speaks of this. The first movement is that we give up those things that are contrary to our profession, those things that are contrary to our profession, namely heresy or error or idols, those things that we look to instead of God to save us, things like money or politics or whatever else. It also calls us to give up our vices and habitual sins, which is an ongoing fight to purge ourselves of those attachments that control us in unhealthy ways. And we also set aside those things which do not help us reach our ultimate end, things that may not be bad in and of themselves, but are unhelpful. But the reason that we get rid of these things is so that we can embrace the good, so that we can grasp what, what God means for us in terms of human flourishing. We begin by embracing the truth of the gospel, which works from the inside out, forming us and shaping us into the new creation of God that we are by virtue of baptism. We begin to grow in the positive virtues that were infused into us by the Holy Spirit at our baptisms, especially those theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And it means that we begin to think about our actions. We intentionally choose those things that move us forward towards our ultimate end. And so Hannah's song, paired with our collect today, remind us to trust in God's power and righteousness. For Hannah, God's power and justice were demonstrated in her pregnancy despite her barrenness. It was in microcosm the humiliation of the proud and the lifting up of the lowly. Our collect has us consider God's power as the source of all truth and righteousness, forcing us to recognize that we require that power working in us to live out our calling as Christians. Ultimately, this season of Eastertide reminds us that God's power and righteousness are revealed definitively in the cross and resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is God's victory over sin, death, and the devil because it means Jesus' sacrifice has been accomplished and is acceptable. The resurrection is the fulfillment of promises made throughout the Holy Scriptures anticipating God's ultimate victory. And the resurrection is a vindication of Jesus Christ showing us that he is who he says he is. And so what is our response to this historical fact of the resurrection? I think the only answer can be worship and adoration. We love and worship God, not only with our minds and with our words, but with our actions. And that's what liturgy trains us to do. That's why it's important. It's the full embodiment of our worship, where we use our lips and our vocal cords to speak the word, where we use our ears and our minds to hear and meditate and cogitate on the word, where we use our bodies to bow, to genuflect, to make the sign of the cross, and other ways of showing reverence to the sacred realities that we recognize around us. And we use our mouths to receive the body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
But all this ceremony, all this ritual, all the things that we do point us even further. It points us to offer up our lives as a perpetual doxology. At the end of evening prayer and the prayer of thanksgiving, we always pray not only with our lips, but in our lives. Not only with our lips, but in our lives. We all have struggles. Everyone came to church this morning with some sort of struggle. Maybe it's a besetting sin. Maybe it's a bad habit. Maybe it's a problem that you're not sure how to solve. Maybe it's a health issue. And I think part of our self-offering to God, it's all the good things, but it's all these things that we're not sure what to do with. It includes those illnesses or those problems or those struggles that we have. We offer them up to him. We unite our suffering to his suffering. And so what does it look like then for you to turn those situations over to God? Reminding yourself that God is a God who can create life where there is no life. That God is a God who can raise people from the dead. And ultimately, when we offer our whole selves to him, when we leave nothing behind, even those struggles, when we're offering our whole entire body, our whole entire soul to him, we're offering what St. Thomas Aquinas called latria, which is a special and totalizing worship that's due only to God alone. And so the resurrection is a constant reminder for us that there's another possibility, there's another way of being, that there's a new way of life that's imbued with and transfigured by God's power. Maybe that doesn't look like what we initially thought it would or hoped it would. God's not a cosmic vending machine in the sky where we put in the right prayer and we pull the lever and we get out what we want. He's not a genie in a bottle. But we know where this ends. And because of that, we don't look inside ourselves. We don't look to the Democrat or Republican parties. We don't look to money or social clout or IQ or degrees or mantras because all of those things are going to disappoint disappoint you someday, somehow. The only place where we find the power that we need, the power that changes us into who we're supposed to be is on our knees in front of the cross. And when we're there, it always takes us to that empty tomb in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.